Hey guys, this is Practical Idealist. I'm Destry. I'm Katie. And today we are going to welcome you to our Rediscovering Disney series with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now that was released in 1937 initially, but then it was released to the public in 1938, like about a month or two later, I think in February. Very successful. Like more successful than the studio or Walt had ever thought it would be, especially during the production of it. They actually called it Disney's Folly. Well, because it went severely over budget. And I think that the initial budget proposal <clears throat> that he gave to his animators was like 10 times the budget of any of their like small music shorts for like silly <laughs> symphonies and stuff. And uh, the money that he got from the movie actually helped him purchase the uh, studio in Burbank, California that they use today. Well, and they had to hire a whole bunch of new animators and stuff for it too, didn't they? Because the amount of work that was going into having to do all of that required quite a few more people than they had already contracted to them. A lot of newspaper cartoonists. Not a lot of them were actually trained in animation and not a lot of them had like formal training. So I think it was Art Babbitt that um, started setting up like these anatomy classes. <laughs> at like his house and like brought the animators to his house and uh, Disney offered Art Babbitt a studio space and drawing supplies in exchange for him bringing the lessons to the studio so he was really involved in trying to make his animators better and getting them the training that they needed. I know definitely in the documentary I watched they talked about how Walt Disney made it a point to like bring in instructors for people and was really strict about how he wanted everything to look like fine art and that he was making art not just cartoons. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting in the documentary they were talking about how when he proposed making this feature-length animated movie which was something that had never been done before never conceived of before his challenge was to try to make people cry not laugh mm -hmm. because up until that point Animation was used like right before movies as all of these slapstick silly things and he wanted to see if people could emotionally connect to the characters enough that they would actually be upset for them and not just laugh at them. Right. It is uh, preserved in the National Film Registry. So when the know, apocalypse comes. Yeah, it'll still be there. And um, going back to a point that I, I referenced in one of our previous episodes they did not want to initially release these movies on VHS. So when Michael Eisner became the CEO, he was pretty much dead set against it. And he was convinced to release like a few of them just to see like what the response would be. But mm -hmm. he was always very protective of certain movies because they were part of the overarching brand. So I thought it was funny that the first time that Snow White was released on VHS was in 1994 in the Masterpiece Collection. Okay. Which was the second VHS collection. And they had been releasing them since 1985. So almost 10 years later. I also saw some other like little trivia things about the movie I saw. Adjusted for inflation, it's the highest grossing animated movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And then also it held the title of highest grossing film ever for a year, but it was knocked out of number one by Gone with the Wind. Well, of course it was. <laughs> because 
What else could knock out Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? And it actually inspired, I think it was MGM who did The Wizard of Oz to actually go ahead with uh, releasing the movie. Okay. They were uncertain whether or not. Whether it would be received well. Yeah, like a high fantasy movie. It has like a big legacy, I think, especially during that time. Like it was just, it was so successful and it was so well received critically that people were just amazed that this was a viable medium yeah. that could be used for more than just, like you said, those little cartoon shorts. And they managed to put a lot of that slapstick into the movie, too, because I feel like they, they felt like they needed to do that because they wanted to give the audience something familiar to look at. Right. Plus, it's so heavy that they had to give them some comic relief somewhere. Initially, the idea was for the dwarves to be more farcical, and uh, Walt Disney actually started like paying his animators to come up with gags, is what he called them, because he wanted all of this, um, this slapstick in the movie. But then he realized that it was kind of overtaking the movie a little bit. Because mm-hmm. initially, the queen was more of a comedic figure. I can't even imagine that. Like, not even so much comedic, but more along the lines of like, old dottery witches that you saw in these cartoon shorts and then he realized that the overarching story had to be more fleshed out so he had them cut like multiple sequences with the doors because they were focusing too heavily on the comedy and not enough on the narrative which was supposed to be the reason why he was doing the feature animation because The fact that there was a narrative that was a little bit darker, a little bit more complicated, made it so that they had to balance the Mm -hmm. two out a little bit more than they originally intended. And this was one of the first, well, maybe the first movie to have like a lot of merchandise surrounding it too, wasn't it? Like Mm -hmm. something where, especially for kids, like they they found that market. We talked about in the, the first episode how Disney became this king of merchandising and creating a brand in every movie that he made. And there was Snow White everything. This was actually like one of the very first soundtracks that was ever recorded and released to the public. Like back in the day that that wasn't even like a concept for people. And the funny thing is that they of course did not have their Disney um, recording studio. Mm-hmm. So they had to utilize other studios and they also had to utilize other people to secure like the rights to produce the the actual album. I thought this was really interesting when I was doing my research that most of the other rights to the other Disney music of this time period and mm-hmm. a little bit after, they were able to buy back, but they don't even own the rights to the soundtrack. And I mean, I think that as far as the music is concerned, I think that the music is more iconic than the movie. Oh, yeah, like, who hasn't sung Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, It's Home From Work We Go? And Whistle While You Work. It's so embedded in our children's culture that I feel like kids just know these songs without even knowing really where they come from. Whenever I think of the music, I don't really equate it with the movie so much. Mm -hmm. They were popularized. Right. And I think that that was part of his plan all along. I mean, with the releasing of the soundtrack album, he's like, these songs are so good that they can actually be, like, pop singles. Yeah, people are going to keep singing them outside the movie. Of course, this movie set the standard for all of the Disney princesses being friends with animals and having 
little companions and everything, too. Mm-hmm. And having, like, that bond where they're able to communicate with them. Bond with nature. Which uh, Shrek deconstructs with the uh, <laughs> the popping of the bird. <laughs> yes. It's like someone watched Snow White and thought of that, and they were like, I'm going to use this one day. Uh-huh. One of the other things that caught me, that for some reason my brain never really caught on to before we rewatched it here recently, was the fact that the music is so integrated into what the characters are doing. Yeah, like every action has a musical accompaniment. Whenever the dwarves do anything, they have a little... Music cue. Yeah. And you don't see that anymore. Like, that's such an old world idea. And that also kind of brings, like, the cartoons back to mind. Yeah. Because when they finally started incorporating music into the shorts, they would get, like, these already written pieces from classical music and then actually just time the animation to it. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of expanding on that a little bit with having the characters not just sing and dance to whatever music was going on, but actually if they're knocking on a door, it's part of how the soundtrack goes. And I think that it's an interesting thing to think about that, again, soundtracks were not a thing, so when music was playing underneath something, it had to have something to do with what was happening on screen. Well, that was also what silent movies did, though. You know, you'd have the silent movie, and then you'd have the organ grinder off to the side playing the music to help you feel the emotions of what's going on on the screen. So I feel like he was tying in that old silent movie era style of music with this movie. But when you think about it, that was the only way that music had been integrated into these shorts and into these movies at that point yeah and that was the only way that it made sense to audiences Mm -hmm. it didn't really make sense that there was a score underneath that was just in the background yeah that was not a concept that they could grasp at that point so if there was music being played inside of the movie it had to actually go with what was happening on screen and enhance the emotion of it which this score definitely does it paves the way for a lot of the stronger parts of it, I'd say. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I found in my research that I I thought was really, really telling of the time that this was released, Walt Disney and his uh, anti-feminist agenda, (laughs) we'll just call it that because that's basically what it was, Adriana Casalotti, who is the, the voice of Snow White. And the character model, isn't she? I believe so. She was actually blacklisted from Hollywood after she did this movie because he was afraid that if anybody heard her speaking or her singing voice, that the illusion that he created that she was Snow White would be ruined. What was that I was saying about him being a control freak? Mm-hmm. So she, like, never worked again. The only thing that she ever did was uh, he would arrange, like, concerts and premieres and stuff for her to attend and she would sing the, the, the classics. So she was his kept woman. Pretty much. That's so gross. And I remember a story that I read a while back about how she was basically just kind of living, you know, her life outside of the spotlight. She would, like, surprise the children in her neighborhood with singing while she was doing household chores. Oh, that's so sad. But that was how she became recognized. That was her mm. only way of doing it because she was not allowed to do anything else in Hollywood after that. That's disgusting. (laughs) Like, talk about some old world ideals Mm -hmm. right there. 
It's gonna ruin my personal illusion so you can't work anymore. I'm sorry, you're too iconic. Isn't that a weird thing I to say I made you somebody? into too big of a star. Right, like that's so fucking weird to me. And of course the movie closes on a big choral number. I think that that's pretty standard with uh, pretty much every movie that he had his hands on. Oh yeah. Like within the 70s and stuff and afterward they kind of stopped doing that or, or did a variation on it. But at any time that you watch anything probably prior to 1960 it always begins and ends with the choir singing well something that really struck me when watching it this time was how theatrical the entire thing was like it felt very much like an operetta Mm -hmm. and less like a movie and maybe that's coming from me you know this modern born in the 90s brained kid but i felt it very strongly that had a structure that was more like an operetta and the music took on that certain tone and like the prince and snow white never actually speak together but they they sing to each other mm-hmm. and it's all based on this sweeping grand romantic musical gestures mm-hmm. the, that's what the entire movie is based on and there's a lot of critics at the time that said that it was so real that it was almost live action like you almost forgot that it was a cartoon well, they were talking about in the documentary about how people would, like, scream when the witch turned into the hag. Mm-hmm. And everyone was in tears when they saw Snow White's hand drop with the apple and when the, the dwarves are all crying around her coffin. Like, it was something that really, like, screwed people up watching <laughs> and terrified kids. They they were worried about the, the wood sequence being too scary because... Mm-hmm. There were kids who were freaking out in theaters, which I I know I was terrified of that sequence even when I was a kid. But I think that that's a testament to kind of what his idea for it was, is that it was supposed to convey multiple different moods and feelings. Like it couldn't just be funny, it couldn't just be sad, it couldn't just be terrifying, it had to be everything. And it was. There's hardly an emotion that it didn't, like, a basic primal human emotion that it did not hit. And I mean, for me, personally, it's not a movie that I feel like I need to watch a lot. No, no. But I definitely, watching it this time, I respected it a lot more than I ever have, knowing the history of it, knowing how important it was to our our culture, even. Like, how it set this basis for so many things that we take for granted in our entertainment culture. Mm-hmm. I liked the music more now than I did when I was a kid, and I respected the scarier parts more now than when I was a kid, but ultimately it's it's pretty boring for me. <laughs> <laughs> Just overall, it's really cool, but I don't really need to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of drags, like... It, the dwarves. Yeah, the, the dwarves that were supposed to be very funny and very farcical end up just being these long, like, slow sequences. Gimmicky stretches of, okay, sure, I guess this is funny. And when they infuse the story back into it, it becomes interesting again. Suddenly it picks back up. But what I thought was interesting when I was doing my research is that maybe the reason why that is is because the the overarching story was not nailed down until pretty late in the production, like almost 1936, is what I read. Crazy. And they started working on this in 1934. Disney told all the animators to just focus on the dwarf sequences because they already had those pretty much mapped out and, and thought of. So I think a lot of 
how the, the movie drags, like especially in the middle when they find her in the bed. It's because the dwarf sequences didn't progress with the movie. Exactly. They were basically already established and they built the rest of the movie around that sequence. That makes sense. Also, this movie does not age particularly well. As far as the As the far messages. as the content and the subliminal <laughs> messages, there's a lot of racist just undertones. undertones in a lot of it. Again, it's not something that you watch and you're like, I can't watch this. This movie should never be shown again. But you see it now with the modern brain and you're like, oh. All I can say is raccoons doing the laundry. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's definitely a product of its time. There was some stuff, yeah. <laughs> not to say that it lessened the enjoyment of the movie because it wasn't overt enough that you're like, wow, I can't watch this. But still, like, it's important to note that you can tell that this was made in a very specific time. Oh, yeah. By a very specific person. By a very specific type of person. <laughs> so with the animation, a lot of the current criticism comes from the fact that the prince is just kind of there and gone and then he comes back and then he takes her off and it's just it's not very well developed the main reason why that was is because a lot of the animators like we said were not trained very well and even though they took all of these anatomy classes while they were working on the movie disney was was not very convinced that they were able to portray like a realistic male figure on screen because you know when you go to like an art section of like any kind of store you're seeing like how to draw cute anime girls how to draw <laughs> hot anime women you know like you don't see like hey make some men unless it's anime of course but that's a whole different conversation <laughs> so all they had as far as training was women so because he didn't believe that they could realistically portray a man through animation he was like well We'll just throw him in there because he has to be, and then we'll throw him at the end, and then that's good enough. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know a lot of what you said while we were watching it was that you were amazed by like the shadows and the shading and how the and, and the was. water, all yeah. everything about like the reflections in the water, the details are insane. I don't think that that level of detail was ever achieved again. The sweep of her of the queen's cape when she's going down the spiral staircase. Oh my god. Well, that was also helpful with uh, the rotoscoping. That's they, true. They did a lot of that with basically they they trace live action footage onto the cell paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what helped with uh, when the queen is transforming where the camera goes around her. Like they actually filmed that live. And they were able to like trace it as the camera went around the, the model. Mm. And they had like this crazy special camera. I, th I think they called it the multiplane camera, where you were able to create different depths of field by like putting cells in front of cells and backgrounds in front of moving parts. Mm -hmm. And you saw it in the documentary. It was like this yeah. big like room tall contraption. It was almost like a primitive computer where it was like spanning the entire length of the floor to the ceiling. It's crazy that they were able to work under those conditions because that's what they had. Well, something that I thought was weird, and I noticed this in Pinocchio too, mm -hmm. but none of the voice actors were credited. They just right. weren't credited at all. So even if you knew the voice, that wasn't something that you'd be like, oh yeah, it was this guy. Like none of the actors got any type of credit. Well, that ruined the illusion. That, and that's why I was thinking <laughs> that it must have been because he was like, no, these characters are themselves. They're not other people. Mm -hmm. Even though they used people who were well known in some cases. In some cases, yeah. 
So I just thought that was interesting. By the way, I know you were asking while we were watching the movie who the prince was. Mm -hmm. And I thought that you might find it interesting that the guy who did the voice for the prince is Harry Stockwell, who is Dean Stockwell's father. And Dean Stockwell is who now? Well, I know him from Quantum Leap. That's the uh, the one with um, the guy who did Danny and Cats Don't Dance. Yes, with Scott, Scott Bakula. Yes, yeah, Scott It's Bakula. his little, his friend. Oh, okay. It, that's Dean Stockwell. So that was his father gotcha. who did The Voice of the Prince. That's crazy. Like I, said, I don't know if, if you would know him from that. He was in a lot of other stuff, but that's that's where I know him from. Wow. So, trivia. <laughs> I, I was curious and I looked it up. Yeah. Dean Stockwell's father, Harry Stockwell. Talk about legacy right there. Yep. Jeez. So the last thing I really wanted to kind of sit down with real quick was the story. Because the narrative-driven aspect of the movie was basically what the major draw was supposed to be. And it kind of began this trend utilizing Walt Disney's view on women at that time period where she was a very passive princess. Like We don't Mm -hmm. really see her doing a whole lot. To her benefit which is different than in cinderella because they get compared a lot i think but i think of the connection more as snow white and aurora from sleeping beauty well i think that the themes that hold them together and holds aurora together as well like the early princesses is mm-hmm. that all of them are good people yes they are like pure good innocent people who remain pure and good and innocent and kind and kind no matter what like i think cinderella like you were saying like definitely exhibits that more but like specifically for snow white she is just living her life doing what she is doing to the best of her ability and because of that good things happen exactly which kind of goes into how walt disney kind of saw the world yeah is that you you buckle down you do what you're supposed to do you take care of your business you don't whine and the world takes care of you, mm-hmm. which doesn't always work. Usually yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> and then um, speaking of that connection between Sleeping Beauty and this, I'm seeing some connections. I'm oh, seeing, definitely. I'm seeing that maybe Maleficent was the much more evil half-sister of the queen here because the queen has the sleeping spell. Well, the queen I feel has like, the crow. I feel like Sleeping Beauty might have been his way of redoing Snow White because after they were done, Disney talked about how he learned so much and they, his team, learned so much over the course of making it that he wished he could redo it. Mm-hmm. And part of me doesn't wonder if he saw Sleeping Beauty as the opportunity to redo Snow White. It's quite possible. Like, just to clean up everything. Because, I mean, you see how the prince takes on a stronger role and there's definitely more of a, a damsel in distress quality to it. And one of the original concepts for Snow White was that the prince was supposed to have a bigger role and that the witch was going to try to kill Snow White multiple times with multiple things. And, like, the prince was much more integrated into the narrative at this point. So she, like, kidnaps him and holds him in a dungeon and tries to make him marry her. And when he refused to marry her, she was going to try to kill him, which is exactly what happens in Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Well, besides the, the right. marrying part. <laughs> but, yeah, the idea of her keeping him captive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't even think about it. To that extent. So back to the story here. There's just a lot of gender stereotyping. Well, yeah. Again, product of its time. Like, she's a mother to the dwarf. She's a maid. She has dominion over them in so much as clean yourself and, like, do all these things that women are supposed to help men with. But they're also not sexualized like the princes because, of course, if you're old and differently abled... 
<laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she's rather much of an ableist, isn't she? Just a little bit. She's like, oh, you're so tiny. Oh, you can speak too? Oh, oh my goodness. I can't believe you can speak. <laughs> but um, as Sarah Barella says, what else could you do with seven itty-bitty men? That's true. <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting that she was very, oh, you're real people? I didn't know that people existed that didn't look like me. <laughs> I've never seen a man before, except for once, when that really pretty man came up and surprised me and started singing to me. And the guy who almost tried to kill me. Oh, and the guy who almost tried to kill me. That he had too. a beer belly. That doesn't count. <laughs> Just that along with the subliminal messaging, like the racist undertone shit, that gave me a, a good old chuckle <laughs> the entire time. Like, I still wow. can't believe you didn't see that until I pointed it out to you. <laughs> and uh, I noticed that, you know, obviously the story is very thin, so it moves pretty quickly unless you're focusing on the doors and then it slows to a complete and total dead stop. And it's more interested in communicating what the characters are doing and who they are. No one has a real name in this. They're all descriptors. Yeah. It's Prince Charming. It's the evil queen. And then all the dwarves have their descriptive names. And I think that that was done out of necessity more than anything else because there was so much going on and it was so complicated for people. Like nowadays we're just kind of like, wow, this is a really boring story that doesn't really go anywhere and there's nothing really special about it. But to assign traits as names was easier for people to follow along, especially mm. with the dwarves. Because there was just so much else to be concerned with. <laughs> so the other thing that I thought was interesting is that the queen's major mission is to become like the fairest in the land. And in order to do that, she becomes the ugliest. <laughs> Mm -hmm. that she can possibly be. When I was kind of deconstructing that a little bit in my mind, it conjured for me that, you know, at the end, of course, she dies. And she dies ugly. So even if she was to have succeeded in her goal and the prince never came and she was stuck in that glass coffin for forever, then Snow White still died, the fairest of them all, and she died a hag. <laughs> and also laws of magic. The spell that she chooses to kill Snow White doesn't actually kill her. And the other thing that I liked about it, again, because I like I like laws of magic, mm -hmm. when she transformed herself into the hag and when she made the draft and dipped the apple into the poison, that didn't hurt anything because the act of creation isn't the problem. The mm -hmm. problem was when she administered the draft to someone and caused harm. That's when nature started turning against her. Mm -hmm. And that's why when she leaves the cottage after absolutely no foreshadowing as far as the weather was concerned. Suddenly we have a rainstorm and just nothing goes her way. Mm -hmm. Followed by her... Her vulture foreshadowing. Yes. I don't believe, and I might be wrong about this, but I don't think that I am. I don't believe that the vultures, like any frame of the vulture animation, was ever put next to a frame of Snow White. I think that every single time that the vultures were shown, it was in accordance with the witch. And so you think that when she picks them up on her way to the cottage, that they're coming to, like, hearken the death of Snow White. They're actually hearkening her death They're instead. following her. Mm -hmm. I loved them swirling down into the mist. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought that it was very telling, speaking of the spell that she put on her, that it was love's first kiss, not true love's kiss. Purity, baby. The fact that he thought about that. Mm -hmm. That, of course, it's not going to be true love's kiss because they haven't had any... Contact. Contact. So it has to be their first kiss, which, okay, sure, that works. 
But then at the end, with the prince, I mean, you even said this, is that it might signify her death, too. Like, he might be the angel coming to collect her for heaven. Well, and there's a big fan theory that the skeleton that's in the queen's workroom is actually the prince. Oh. So Snow White dies when the huntsman comes to get her. Mm-hmm. And then everything involving Snow White after that is, like, her dream. Oh, okay. On her way to the afterlife. On her way to the afterlife, so that when eventually the prince comes and gets her, he's dead too. But he's the angel of death. But he's like the angel of death for her taking her away. As opposed to the, the vultures being. The, As opposed to the vultures, yeah. The carrion of the plague, basically. Yeah. But, I mean, there's obviously a lot to talk about. I, yeah. I, I didn't think that we would go this long on it, but, I mean, I had a, a full list of notes, to be fair. I mean, I was surprised. I enjoyed it more than I thought it would. I never really dug deep into it like this. So yeah. I'm glad that we're getting the, the opportunity to Absolutely. do that. Absolutely. So out of Seven Dwarves, Destry, since we were going to have a new rating system for each movie, out of Seven Dwarves, how many dwarves would you give this movie? Hmm. With Seven being, of course, the best movie you've ever seen. I would give it about a four or a five. Only that, really? Mainly just because it's not something that I'm going to rush back to and watch because I like the movie. It's not something that I feel really captures my attention. That's fair. And that's one of the things that I wrote down here is that it's it's an animated marvel. Mm-hmm. Like you go back to it because it's this big artistic achievement. It's history. And you give it its due because it's important and it should be important. But as far as the movie is concerned, it's really basic. And of course it is. And the fact that it's been so successful and the fact that, you know, people know the songs and the characters the world over. Like Dopey was like one of the first major mascots for the studio besides Mickey Mouse. It has this this wonderful place in history, but I would say probably about five dwarves. I would give it six dwarves just because it didn't age well for me. I don't Mm -hmm. think this is a movie that necessarily holds up. If I didn't know the background behind it, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did. But it's still a really beautiful movie. And it's still a very compelling, emotional story. So that's why I'm giving it six dwarves. They were fully able to wrench every single drop of emotion out of the animation out of those characters. Well, my mom was even saying that the first time she saw it, she cried. It's effective. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, six dwarves. To my five. Yes. I think that about covers Snow White for us. Enjoyed it much more than I was expecting to. Yep. I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that it brought the uh, the attention to the studio that it did so that he could continue to create these, these wonderful movies. And uh, up next, we are going to be speaking about Pinocchio, your favorite. Oh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. It was released in 1940, and it is also preserved in the National Film Registry. And it was also one of the first movies to be released on VHS. Which is really bizarre to me. When did they start releasing movies on VHS? About the time that Michael Eisner took over, which was about 1985. Okay. And that was when they started re-releasing a lot of those movies, though, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, they just really, really did not want to release any of the VHSs. He thought that would hurt the brand, that it would make it too accessible. He liked the history of re-releasing them every five to seven years. The exclusivity. And so he just put a couple testers out there, and for some reason he chose this as one of the testers. I guess he looked back at the returns on the investment that Walt had put into them, and if they made their money back, he was going to keep those away. But if they didn't make their money back, 
I guess in his mind it was justified that, well, they didn't make the money that they should have made when they originally mm-hmm. were released, so if we re-release them on VHS, we're helping boost their numbers. So this was released in 1940, right? Yes. So Dumbo actually came out right before Pearl Harbor. Its release date was October 23rd of 1941. Oof. So that was really the last movie before World War II. Actually or, really started affecting Yeah, before America. America joined World War II. But, wow. So yeah, this was kind of like the last happy movie, the last two happy movies we had. And I mean, that's funny because Dumbo actually recouped and did better than its production value. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about Dumbo. But Pinocchio didn't do so well, right? No, no. A lot of critics at the time were very, very happy with it. They even <clears throat> said it was better than Snow White. Ooh. Like, they thought that Snow White was groundbreaking, mm-hmm. as well as this one, because of, like, the effects inside of the movie. Okay. Like, Snow White was groundbreaking because it was the first feature-length animated film. It was the first thing of its kind. Right. And this one was more groundbreaking because of the touches that they put into making it more realistic. This was one of the first times that the movement of like machines, like the, the cuckoo, um, clocks. cuckoo clocks, were able to be shown like realistically, like how they actually operated in real life. Well, I also find it interesting that after Snow White, him not wanting the prince, like pulling the part of the prince back a little bit because he didn't trust his animators to be able to do the male form that suddenly he makes a movie that has no girls in it. Right. But also, all of the boys in the movie are caricatures yeah. of men, you know? And Geppetto is an old man, so I guess he, he's not thinking of male in its prime. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they thought was well done was the natural elements. Like, it was the first time that water moved the way it should have. And rain looked realistic okay. in an animated form. As far as like the character animations are concerned, I mean, I found them to be more defined. Yeah, there are more distinguished features in all of the characters. And I felt like they held more weight inside of the world. And more expression, too, I'd say, on the faces. He has more of a form and a presence mm-hmm. than maybe little wispy Snow White does in the middle of a forest. I, I just feel like... They really actually spent time perfecting those character models. And I think that, yeah, they made clay models of the characters so that they could be moved in 3D space for the animators. So when they're turning their back or they're moving in interesting and unique ways, that it wasn't just like, well, this is my approximation of how Geppetto's back looks like. They like could you actually could literally study move it. the figure. And they also did that for the cuckoo clocks, you said, when you were Yeah, they said it. that they created actual models of all of the cuckoo clocks like working models so that the animators could study them which i wonder what happened to those probably destroyed as far as the animation is concerned what i thought was a weird contrast was the fact that the frames were really full like i felt like every location that they went to felt really lived in yeah, it felt like there was more stuff everywhere. It was more cluttered. And when you went in-depth to see, like, Jiminy Cricket's point of view, you could see, like, the photorealistic stuff on the floor, and if there was ashes, or if there yeah. was dirt, or if there was trash, you could see all of that around him. But contrasting that, I felt like it was less detailed sometimes. Because we were sitting there looking at the Snow White Castle, and we're like, Wow, you can see like every single crack, every single like Brick. weathered mark, 
and you don't really see that a lot. It's more expansive, I it guess. It seems like the attention was paid more to items than mm-hmm. to the backgrounds, yeah. as opposed to in Snow White, where they had all of these super elaborate backgrounds, and then the characters were beautiful, but they weren't the ones that had the super amount of detail. And I feel like there was a better integration between the characters and the backgrounds, because in a lot of like the backgrounds of Snow White, if there was a character back there... It really felt painted. It was static, yeah. Like, you didn't really see a lot of movement. You didn't really see a lot of depth of field. But in this one, you actually see, as they're going through the town, when Pinocchio goes to school, you can see different animations happening on different layers as they move through the town. Right. Bambi was actually supposed to be their next movie after Snow White. It was over budget. It was over time. They were studying actual animals. animals. So it's interesting to watch how cartoony and cutesy the animals were in Snow White. Yeah. And then seeing them like take the a, a step up in this one, like anatomy wise. Yeah. Like even though it's not as realistic as what they tried to do with Bambi, they still like when Figaro moves, it moves more like, like a, a cat. cat. Yeah. Even if it is he, like a cartoon excuse version. Excuse you when he moves. <laughs> you said it, he is a he. And speaking of Figaro, he was one of like the first big mascots for the company. And I mean, so was Jiminy Cricket. I remember reading somewhere that initially the guy who designed the character made him look more like an actual cricket. Mm-hmm. And Disney was like, no, kids are going to be freaked out because he looks like a bug. Right. And so the animator was never happy with that character because he's like, I just did what he told me to, but I wasn't happy with it. It doesn't look like a bug. <laughs> he's like, it's just, it's a character. It's no longer a creature but you gotta think long form though yeah you gotta sell that merch yo seriously (laughs) but yeah like even you said when we were watching it that they had figaro become Minnie mouse's cat and they like switched out another pet that she had the other thing that you brought up was that this was the first time in animation that celebrities were involved in the voice acting. Text. Or like low-key celebrities, well-known voices. Because I believe the, the guy who did Jiminy Cricket was in a lot of old westerns. I think his name's Cliff Edwards. So I just think it's really cool that not only, like with Dopey in Snow White, he was the mascot for that movie. But with Figaro and, and Jiminy Cricket, I have him down as JC in my <laughs> notes, by the way. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I like that they actually like implanted them into other properties. Yeah. And then talking about iconic, that Wish Upon a Star song. Oh my God. It became the theme song for like all of Disney. And to think that something that happened so early on... Is still something that's being used. It's like the Disney anthem. Yeah. Like, you just, you hear those couple of notes and you're like, I know what that is. Yeah, that's Disney. It's really cool that it was so integrated into popular culture. Like, it wasn't just art. It wasn't just, like, a fad or a phase. It was literally something that shaped how media works. Also, I don't know if you noticed this, but during When You Wish Upon a Star... When they do the like the close up of Jiminy Cricket, mm-hmm. I was looking at the background and did you notice what the books were behind him? Mm-mm. It was um, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> so it was like him putting in like a little like. By the way, we're gonna be doing these soon. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of movies got put on extreme hold. Because of the war. Yeah. They had to be. They didn't have people or materials for it. But there's one package movie that we're not going to watch. And I feel kind of odd saying that I've just never seen it. But I just have no interest in seeing it. 
because a lot of stuff that they did during the mid to late 40s was propaganda films Mm -hmm. for the the U.S. Army. And there's a package film called, I think, Victory Through Air Power. Oh, God. And that has never been on my radar because every time I look at it, like it had nothing to do with the studio or anything artistic. It was literally just, well, the army is paying us to put some pretty visuals to their message vision or whatever. And I just, I feel like that might be interesting to talk about. But as far as like part of the Disney animated canon, I don't think that it's necessary. So, the next big thing we're going to talk about here is Pinocchio's story. And, and what do you think about that, Katie? So, I feel like I'm in the minority here, but can we just all be honest and say that Pinocchio is a terrible movie? <laughs> I understand that it has a historical significance. I do. And I feel that weight more now watching them in order than I ever would have before. But it's a bad story. It's a badly done story mm, I, I, it's I agree with horrible that. characters there's nothing redeemable, redeemable about any of these characters the point of the story is that this character wants to become human by learning what humanity is by being you know the best person but he never does anything to earn the humanity and you know what a really good version of that is even though i don't personally like it sword in the stone Oh, that's it's true. basically the exact yeah. same movie in my opinion, but Only I think it does better. it better. Yeah. There seems to be like a little culty mm-hmm. sensation around this movie. And when we were doing research on it, I kept seeing like it's in these lists of greatest movies of all time. And I really want someone to explain to me why. Because yeah. I'm not seeing anything that I can agree with. I really think that it's mainly just due to the fact that there's so many dark undertones and like adult themes. In a children's movie, I guess, but unless you're going to say I respect it because it did something that other movies didn't do at the time, okay, that's fair enough. But ultimately, it's not doing anything. It's just a very controversial movie, and I think that people just love that shit. Like, I think that people love to sit in in the movie theater and be like, shocked and awed at how dare you say that like the whole jackass thing but it's also this just it's a morality tale ultimately mm-hmm. i mean it's very realistic dangers yeah but it's all like well if you don't listen to your parents then you're going to get turned into an animal against your will <laughs> and shipped off to be a work donkey yeah i just no, I can't get behind this movie. There's there's nothing redeemable about it to me other than Figaro. But but there's beer and there's smoking and that, that's cool. Like that entire, the Pleasure Island sequence is absurd Oof. in every possible way. Like I get that it's not supposed to be realistic. It's a kid's magic movie, okay? Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be realistic, but there's nothing about it that's even magical. We don't really get like an established like world here. There is no world. The rules don't really make any Animals sense. Animals are also people, but yeah. they're also animals. But they're and also pets, not. Yeah. But they're also not, and I don't understand anything about this movie. And what in God's name do they do with the donkeys that can still talk? Well, I told you that they probably, it sounds like they lock them up until they can't talk anymore. Part of this is a personal issue to me. Because, like, you know how there are certain things that everyone is just deeply disturbed by? Like, there are just certain things that everyone has that they cannot tolerate. Mm -hmm. One of mine is puppets. I hate, (laughs) I, with a fiery, skin-crawling passion, I cannot stand puppets. I hate them. Send puppets to our Instagram. (laughs) 
So that's already just, there's a big old no-no. I don't like toys that come to life. <laughs> but number two is that I really don't like stories about people being involuntarily turned into animals. I don't mind the werewolves and the changelings and that's fine. You know, at least they have some level of like, I get this. But I hate when people are turned into animal as like a punishment and you don't have control and you can't turn it back. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I read a short story about this when I was a kid too that really freaked me out. But there's also, there's this other movie that came out a couple years ago. It's like an art house movie. It's called The Lobster. And that, like watching that movie was, it was extremely triggering. And I watched it because it was a really good movie. But still, I was like horrified for months afterward. And I feel like Pinocchio is another one of those movies for me where there are so many things that make me so uncomfortable. And not even in well, this is interesting. I'd like to challenge myself and be triggered in ways to mm-hmm. stretch my abilities and stuff. No, it's just disgusting and weird, and it makes no goddamn sense. And it's not even good on top of it. <laughs> well, never watch Tusk, then. I have no idea what that is. It's about this guy who, he's like a podcaster, haha, funnily enough, and he goes to interview this crazy old crackpot guy somewhere in <laughs> Canada. And... Then he basically turns him into a walrus. Okay. Through like behavioral modification and he like sews him into like this walrus suit. No, okay, you can yeah, stop that. Uh, exactly. So never ever watch that. No, thank you. <laughs> also, I thought you were gonna say a crazy white cracker. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. A crazy white cracker. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are some interesting themes and morals here. Interesting is a yeah. good way of putting it. Uh, not good or bad, just interesting. Or stupid. <laughs> but, like, when the Blue Fairy gifts Jiminy Cricket to be his conscience, there's, like, this moment where she, like, her little wand touches him and his, like, rags turn into, like, the upstanding gentleman attire. Yeah. And it's kind of like what Walt Disney's saying is that giving you a purpose, giving you a meaning in your existence kind of changes your station in yeah, life. Yeah, if you choose to do hard work, then you get to move up, mm-hmm. which is not something that Pinocchio learns. No, exactly. I think that that is like the major failing of this movie. Is that he never actually does anything to earn his humanity. Oh, I did one good thing. Suddenly I'm a human. But even that doesn't really make any sense because... He didn't really do it. Well, I mean, anatomically, he's already basically a real boy. Yeah. <laughs> because they talk about his heart beating, they talk right. about him breathing or not breathing He's underwater. He happens to be made of wood. Like, I would rather be a damn puppet if I could breathe underwater. No, no, right? And yet somehow he drowns. Yeah, and I really, really don't understand. There's not, a, I mean, again, it's not like I'm asking for a particular amount of logic from a kid's movie. If you're going to make a movie, you have to establish a world, and mm-hmm. they didn't do that. Because we talked about that in Snow White, where after she gives her the apple, the universe is upset with her because it changed its There's course. logic. Yeah, because of the rules of magic. But with this, we got anthropomorphic animals... We have people that are turned into animals. We have pets. We have breathing underwater and then drowning. And it just doesn't, like, there's no steadfast reality to cling to. And it really bothers me. Now, having said that, there are some cute moments. Everything that Figaro does, I relate on a spiritual level to that little cat. He always tries to hit the puppet whenever it comes near him. He gets mad when people wake him up. He gets grumpy when he has to get out of his comfy bed and shut the window because the old man is too lazy to get up and shut the window on his own. I relate to this little cat. And I love him. And I want one. 
And I also thought it was interesting that when the Blue Fairy gives Jiminy Cricket his mission here, that it's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is because he's like the first to speak up and be like, oh, let me tell you how it is, Sonny Boy. Right. And she's like, well, if you feel that you can explain things to him in a way that he's going to understand, comprehend, and be able to utilize, then have at it then. Meanwhile, he utterly fails, and yet yeah. he still wins at the end. Oh, he gives up every step of the way. Oh, I guess you don't need me, or that's too hard, or you're not going to listen to me. Like, he finds an excuse every time. And he still gets his gold star. Even if you fail, if you work hard, you'll get things. Sure. That's what the movie is saying. <laughs> if you just pretend to work hard, then you'll get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It's so stupid. And that falls into the no establishment of the world. Like, mm-hmm. the morals don't even make any sense. Like, they don't equal each other. I also thought there was a lot of cultural appropriation. Just a bit. Because they have all those different... Uh, puppets in the I have no strings to hold mm-hmm. me down number that were all very uh, interestingly voice acted with their accents and so what you're saying is there was yet again some racism oh in a Disney movie huh I wonder if that will continue to be a theme <laughs> and I mean Stromboli to a certain extent is a like the bit. essential Italian male and also mm. Italians are apparently untrustworthy again. And swindlers. And he's and, like a gypsy, too. And you see that again in Dumbo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oof. And then what I think was the most striking one was the little smoking area of Pleasure Island themed with those uh, Native American yeah, totems with, like, the peace yeah. pipes and stuff. And it looked like it was, like, a Vegas casino type thing. And I'm like, wow, that is, like the worst portrayal of that race that I've seen recently. And you'll see more of that in Peter Pan then, too. Yeah, exactly. But there's just a lot of scare tactics that they yeah. utilize for, you listen to your parents now, and you you stay children. Like, I think that, like, with the, the drinking and the smoking and indulging in adult pleasures, uh-huh. that that kind of talks to one of Walt Disney's major <clears throat> themes, is that children need to remain children. Yeah. Like, don't grow up too fast, don't be worried because about bad doing, things are going to happen. Right, but don't worry about doing drugs and alcohol and this and stuff. There's plenty of time for that, but you only have this amount of time to be a child. The first time I remember seeing this movie was at a church lock-in. Oh my god. When I was really young. I know they love their fear-mongering, but god I damn. remember watching this, like being in my little <laughs> tiny sleeping bag, oh, and all like wrapped up in a blanket, and watching this movie and being scared out of my wits to the point where I ran to my mom, who was <laughs> one of the, the chaperones. chaperones. I actually have this memory of watching this movie and being so like thoroughly freaked out by it mm-hmm. that I, I couldn't keep watching it. That should tell you something right there. Yeah. That, we were watching it at a church lock-in. Like, people talk a lot about, like, the minute moment where, like, the coachman has, like, his, when they come to Pleasure Island, they never come <clears throat> back, and he has this, like, demon face. Uh-huh. And that's, like, one of the top scariest Disney moments Ugh. in a lot of countdowns. I don't find that to be the scary moment. Oh, I, no. I find the kid screaming for his mom. Mom, yeah. <laughs> the scariest moment. Ugh, that makes me so sick. It's yeah. disgusting. It's like, you do what your parents say, or you're going to be tricked, and you're going to be sold, and you're going to be destroyed. Yeah, you're not going to be yourself anymore. Exactly. You're going to lose who you are. Mm -hmm. 
But I do think that there are some decent morals. Please tell me. I like the idea of don't rely on adults to fix everything for you. Okay. You have to fix your own problems. Right. There's a moment where Pinocchio is like, I'm not just going to sit at home and cry about how my dad's probably dead. I'm going to go try to do something to fix it. Especially since he's the one that caused it. Mm -hmm. Because if he would have done what he was supposed to do and came home, he never would have been out looking for it. And he never would have been swallowed by the whale. Your bad decisions affect other people. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to come and try to help you and to try to fix your message for you. And they might get you. hurt. And they might, yeah, get affected by trying to help you. So I did like that. Yeah. I do find the Blue Fairy to be an interesting character because she comes in and she she sees the situation. And she's like, okay, I'm going to give you this opportunity. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it's up to you to make it happen. And then she comes in she's like, all right, you had one chance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help you out one time. I can't help you out again because the entire point of this is that you have to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. So I do kind of like her as a as a magical character coming in being like, hey, you only get so many chances. Mm-hmm. That's been one of the things that my dad has told me. And that's one of the things that his dad told him. If you get in trouble, I'll bail you out once. You have to be able to make a mistake so that you can learn from it. But if you do it again, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Also, I liked that the person who modeled for the Blue Fairy was mm-hmm. also the model for the Columbia Studios logo. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you told me that. I thought that was interesting. She is a beautiful character. Uh-huh. Definitely. So. Like, she's probably the most... Glamorous. Closest to any of the Snow White character models. Yeah. She's very ethereal. Yeah. Going to Pinocchio from Snow White, the characters were just so much more grounded Mm -hmm. as opposed to the etherealness of how Snow White was designed. Snow White was more romantic and Pinocchio was a lot more gritty. Mm -hmm. Also, let's briefly touch on the fact that apparently the guy who did the voice for Geppetto, who was also the character model for Geppetto, was a, a huge, like, he was a Nazi. Like, he was oh, a straight-up Nazi. Crap. When he would be in the studio, he would piss off all of the animators because he would be talking about how amazing Hitler was. Oh, so God. when they were doing uh, the scene where he was on the raft, they gave him a really rough ride <laughs> because they wanted to torture him because they could not stand this guy. I bet. So, Especially during that time. Yeah, this is right before things started kicking into high gear. Mm-hmm. So, again, interesting how the real live people involved in this had such strong influences as well. It's such an interesting distinction, the Walt Disney anti-Semite situation Mm -hmm. versus the communist stuff. Yeah. Like, you would think that they'd kind of be one and the same, but they never really were. They never quite overlapped. With our ability to have this hindsight, Mm -hmm. we're able to see things so much clearer than they were able to at the time. And it's a little bit scary to think that that type of thinking, and not just with the racism and anti-Semitism, but even just the anti-women sentiment, Mm -hmm. like that is within people's lifetimes. That is something that is still so close to us now. Ingrained. When you look at some of the subliminal messaging like we've been talking about that we keep seeing in these movies, like no one would have blinked at that. Nope. And now we can look back at this and be like, whoa, that makes me uncomfortable. Because you see it and you you know with our modern brains that like, no, that's not okay Mm -hmm. to make jokes like that. And it doesn't just happen in Disney movies. I mean, obviously, other movies that are coming out during the time, like, isn't it in Holiday Inn when they have that entire sequence in blackface Mm -hmm. with the the minstrel thing? It was just a thing in media at that time. It also makes me wonder what's just a thing in media in 
our time. Right. That in another 40, 50 years, people are going to look back and be like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> That's one of the things I continue to notice as we're moving through these movies, how it's such a different time and thank God it is. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, to kind of answer your question, even though I don't think it's a very satisfactory answer about why people like it so much, I think that it's just the paradox. It's a movie about children for children but it's so dark and it's so adult and it presents all of these realistic consequences like he almost gets fucking abducted and then he almost dies these are very real things well and i did notice and there's no information that i've been able to find about it and i assume you've heard about this too that they're gonna do like a live action yeah Pinocchio they, they've been working on that in 2021 and yeah. it's uh how do you say his name? Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, he's going to be directing it. So they're looking at doing like, you know, a darker version or whatever. But there's not a, a whole lot darker than you can go. Right. Oh, no, it's not supposed to be live action. It's still supposed to be animated. Really? Um, yeah, that's what it says. Animated fantasy musical. I don't know what to say about that. Because, I mean, here a couple of years ago, it's been about 10 or so years now. But he was, like, tapped to direct these darker features based around like old legends and like the Disney park rides. So like he was going to do his own version of the Haunted Mansion, but they dropped that within a couple of years of them addressing that. Uh-huh. So I think that they've been trying to get him to do something at some point for them. But I don't know. That sounds really odd to me. Yeah, I just kind of glanced at some of the cast and crew. And I mean, there's no cast attached yet. They only have concept artists attached to the art department, but <laughs> special effects... They have puppet development listed. But yeah, I mean, I feel like this does seem to be the type of movie that would inspire that type of person. Mm -hmm. If you enjoy it, whatever. I don't get it, and I'm not going to. I think it's (laughs) stupid. I think that it's not a good movie at all. I don't think it's a good movie or a good story. It's a bit mixed up. It doesn't know what it's trying to be. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a lot of everything and a whole lot of nothing at the same time. And I'm really looking forward to moving past this era, I must say, because I don't like any of these movies. Snow White was just okay. And what's funny is that Walt Disney was the proudest of all of these. That's so weird to me. You know, in the 50s, he's like, well, at least I get to do the stories that I wanted to do ever since I started the company in the 20s. But now my main focus is Disneyland, so... Well, he was also getting old and battier than ever before at that point, I guess, but... And the fact that he hated Cinderella right. is, is enough for me. Like, that tells me that he was he was going off the deep end at that point. But... <laughs> this was kind of the beginning of his downward spiral, I would say, mainly just because Snow White went over so well, and then this one just kind of bombed a little bit. Like, not critically, obviously, we already talked about that. But just the box office was not there for this. But Fantasia lost a whole shit ton of money. So it's an interesting place in time. I'm struggling with these movies, I must say. I'm not having a particularly good time watching them. Which is a shame. Right. But the one thing that I will say is that the animation, I really like the animation. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Like when I think of the difference between animation and this time, I really, really liked that precision, that detail. And then once you hit Cinderella and, and onward, you start losing it. It's a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more cartoony, a little bit more mainstream. It's still very well animated, obviously. Right. But there's a very big distinction of 1950 and onward, and then 1949 and before. And I think that I'm really, really seeing that this time. That's fair. Especially with this one. 
Like, this one was dark as hell. So for the rating system for Pinocchio, I went through a couple different thoughts. You know, we could have easily done Jiminy Crickets or Blue Fairies. Or Scary Puppets. Or Scary Puppets or... (laughs) demonic donkeys yeah but ultimately i think that the rating system should be based on something positive or fun and the only fun positive thing in this movie (laughs) was figaro so out of five figaro's destry what would you rate pinocchio i would give it a three really mainly just because it's so artistically well envisioned i think that he was able to really get his money's worth out of this one. Like, I really feel like whatever his vision for this movie was, that he accomplished it. That's fair. And for me, it's hard to hate it. I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, out of five figaros, I gave it a 1.2. Ooh. The 1.2. How can you have a point two of a figaro? It's like a a foot? Yeah, it's like one little foot (laughs) for the tip of his tail. So you would cut or a his, figaro his in half nose. into Just, little chunks. No, it's like it's a one figaro and then one figaro nose touching the other figaro. Figaro chunks. <laughs> Never say that again. <laughs> but the reason being that it's a horrible movie and there's nothing positive about it except for figaro. <laughs> and there are some pretty... So why'd you cut him in half? I didn't cut him in half. You cut off his nose. I didn't cut off his nose. <laughs> I said he, his nose is touching things. Anyway, if you would allow me to continue speaking. Never. But you get 1.2 figaros because there were some really pretty backgrounds. I appreciated the detail that went into that. I liked the blue fairy and I liked Figaro. And that is the only reason why he gets even that amount. I really, really, really hate this movie. (laughs) If it wasn't obvious by now. But yeah, definitely three figaros for me. It's historically... It's significant, but it's also crap. Which is why it even gets one. Like I said, like I would give it less if I could, but ultimately, I agree with you. There is some historical significance, and there is some some prettiness in it, but it's a heaping pile of crap to me. All right, well, <laughs> if you're done ranting, I think the rant has gone out of me. <laughs> I'm just going. I'm going to remember this movie as an adorable movie about a little cat who's annoyed by everybody. Yep. I don't care about Pinocchio. I care about the story of Figaro. <laughs> And hates puppets. Who smacks the ever-loving crap out of puppets. (laughs) But has fishy kisses. Gives fishy kisses. I also have a fishy friend. See? I am Figaro. (laughs) And so ends part one of our apparently now two-part episode on the Disney animated movies from 1938 to 1943. Who knew we could talk so much? Right? I thought we could just lump all of these in to the same one it would be like maybe maybe an hour and a half but we have literally an hour here well i mean i think it's pretty telling of how in depth we go into all of this stuff how much there still is to unpack even for what are considered kids movies mm-hmm. which is kind of the point i guess of us going back and rewatching these up next we have fantasia dumbo and bambi an interesting trio yeah Uh, Originally, we were not going to include Fantasia in this batch, but we decided that going chronologically would probably be a better choice. I think that you had the idea to just go all the way through instead of trying to break them up. Well, it would steal my thunder a little bit because I feel like I'm learning a lot about the progression of Disney and not seeing them in order would kind of mess me up a little bit, I think. 
So I hope that you are enjoying it so far. And uh, we have a Twitter. It is at idealist underscore the. We also have a Instagram, which is the Practical Idealist, or our names, Destry and Katie. Join us there to see the progression of Destry watching Firefly for the first time. <laughs> it's slow going. Well, there's been some technology malfunctions along the way. Yeah, yeah. I have one of the old DVD VCRs. VCRs, man. <laughs> and the VCR's been going out for years now, but the DVD player just recently started to just die, so. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sidetrack. All right, guys, we will see you in the next one. Bye.